has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day he will be raised again. Luke chapter 24 verses 6 through 7 and greetings world from the great state of Texas. Welcome to Bridge Radio's Easter edition. We hope everyone's good Friday is well spent with family, friends, and most importantly, the Lord. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited for this episode, Abe. Yeah. S- super excited. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, because we'll be talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ with a very special guest, second mm-hmm. time guest. Yes. And uh, and we're going to be asking some questions like, uh, how can a Christian have confidence that Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, we are 2,000 years removed from the claimed event. How do we know? In, in a day full of media coverage, media outlets, uh, you know, we have pictures, we have videotapes, and we could we could uh, verify certain evidences through those means. So it, it's a little bit hard for us to to um, to you know to, to come to this assurance that the resurrection a- uh, actually happened. Yeah. So um, so yeah, and, and and another point that I want to make why this topic is so important is because Paul even said right, Abe, yes. that if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith in us as a as a Christian religion religion, uh, as a Christian people, uh, our faith is the most to be pitied. Yeah. So, yeah. So, in, in other words, the, the resurrection is so important that uh, if it didn't happen, uh, not only is Good Friday meaningless, this Friday is meaningless, but also Sunday, right? Yeah. Might as well not even go to church. Uh, yeah. And even after that, might as well not have any devotionals, yeah. have any prayer. So, there's there's heavy uh, significance, emphasis on, on yeah. why the resurrection is important yeah, so go, go pick up the bunny eggs yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that would be that would be, be that'd be better well spent right yeah. so yeah this is the question that we're going to be asking uh, but before we go ahead and, and start i am your host uh as always mr uh, julio rodriguez and across from me is my co-host mr uh mr texas the guy who screams out texas aw <laughs> hello. Varilla. hello everybody you guys probably haven't noticed i have not been on some of the previous uh podcasts before uh i was out uh, just running around a little bit in the country, but happy to be back on the last several episodes. So it's just good to be back for sure. Always, always glad to have the AEW. Mm. All right, guys. Well, if you're new to the program, please subscribe. We're on all the major podcast platforms, but you can not only find us there. We have a Bridge app available, and we're across all the major app stores. So just type in Bridge Ministries, and you will see our name, Logan, uh, Logan, slogan, <laughs> Logan, uh, uh, logo, and, and and slogan, coffee and good news, and and uh, and our app has bridge radio as well as a lot of theological goodness so you could find uh, expository sermons through books of the bible devotionals and much more so please go check that out and without further ado yes let's Uh, go ahead and introduce our guest yes 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 let's get this started please so our guest (laughs) is not only the leading scholar on the resurrection in our day but in all of christendom if Mm. you want evidence for the resurrection you ask this guy that we have on so he has dedicated his professional life to the examination of the relevant historical historical, philosophical, and theological issues surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. In addition, he has also uh, written a lot of books and articles on the subject. And without further ado, thank you, Dr. Gary Habermas, for joining us again. Well, guys, yes, enjoy being on with you and always enjoy this time of the year. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Best topic in history, let alone 
on this weekend. So yeah, it, it just just in for a good time. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a question before we really dive into the topic. That really the topic today. But how do you recognize it that uh, kind of like what I said here at the beginning of the program that in all of Christendom you you are the leading scholar like in history on this topic. Like how how does that feel? Or have you thought about it? Or do you even think about it that way? No pressure. Yeah, I thought about it long enough that when you said it, it kind of stunned me. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> that that who will do that to you? Christendom. That's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the reality. I mean I don't know anybody else who's done as much work as you. I mean we were just talking before the program. You're doing a magnum opus. How many volumes is that? Well, I don't know volumes because I don't have a publisher lined up, and I don't have a publisher lined up because. I'm not close enough to worry about it. If I sign up with a publisher, they're going to tell me, uh, okay, when are we going to bring the first volume out? And then they're going to say, uh, one year one year later, the next one, and one year later, the next one. And I'm not quite ready to move there. I'm on page um, 4,400-ish. I'm a little over 4,400 pages. Wow. And, uh, well, look at it this way. You guys know Craig Keener, right? Yes. Yes. Craig called me probably a month ago, and I was teasing with him. He's a good friend. And uh, I was talking to him about his commentary on the Book of Acts, his, uh, you know, 5,000 pages. And I said, he said, how are you coming with your magnum opus? And I said, Craig, I said, my goal, I felt like saying when I grow up, I want to be a scholar <laughs> just like you. But, That's but, funny. But uh, I told him, I said, my goal is to beat your Acts commentary by one page. And, <laughs> That's funny. And he started laughing, just like you guys are doing, and he said, go for it, man, go for it. That and so great. I told him, okay, I'm going to go for one page over. So That's great. Yeah, it, it gets long days, and, and as I told somebody the other day, I can write I can write for half a day because I've got other things. I've got deadlines, and I'm mm. writing a blurb for a book today, and I've got email, and got all kinds of things to do. So maybe I write for half a day, and then at night when I call it quits, literally around 10, 11, 12 o'clock, I've been working 80 hours a week for years, and I've been doing this project for, for five full years now. Wow. And, and oftentimes my pages have increased by one page all mm. day. And, wow. and, you know, I'm glad to have it done, but it could be frustrating because it's, and I have the research all done. Yeah. It wow. just all slow, slow because of all the end notes. And yeah. you have to say, hey, don't forget about this guy or this guy raised a theory back 100 years ago. Or what do we say to this? And and you just do a lot of digging and a lot of writing, a lot of rewriting. It's it's slow. So sure. I don't have a response on, on the time. Okay. When I'm done, I'm going to have about 5,000 pages to edit. So. So, Dr. Habermas, just real quick for our listeners around the world, what is just a magnum opus? Yeah, what does that even mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. A magnum opus, those two words are usually used for somebody who's done a lot of work. I I mean, I suppose it could be uh, music, writing music. It could be a movie. I'm just, you know, any field right. yeah, yeah, yeah. production. And, and often when people have done a lot of it, they stop and they do a tribute or they do something that summarizes everything. And, and in right. my case, this idea of a magnum opus is, uh, what can we say about the resurrection? I've got 40-something books, and about exactly half of them are in the resurrection. So a lot of people think that I'm like summarizing these 20-something little books, but that's 
that's not what's happening at all right now anyway up until this point about 90 percent of my material is totally new i've never written on it wow that, that by the way that's wow. probably another reason for why it's so slow you know writing wow. but so I, I think my main goal is is this sounds kind of kind of you know Edgar Allan Poe or something, but I, I feel like coming to the end of my career or, or you know, being in the short direction of my ministry, not the long way, I, I don't want to die with a lot of information in my mind. I would mm-hmm. like to make this available, and I'd like it to be out there, and I don't care a bit about sales. I just care about having the material out there so that people just know in the back of their minds if I need something, somewhere around here, there's a book on that topic, and I'll try to get my library to order it or something. You know, yeah. something like that. I just want it out there and in print. Praise God. Praise Do- God. Doctor, you just uh, you just just reminded me something we were just talking this morning about ending the race well. Yeah. And thank you for what you're doing yes. when, whenever you're done. Um, so, thank yeah. you for saying so. It's... it's uh, it's slow, but it's an honor, and I'm 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 glad to be doing it. Yeah, Actually, when I write the element and I'm writing, I really enjoy it. It just sometimes things are a little slower and a little longer than you want them to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, we thank you for all your work, Doctor Habermas. Yes. So uh, you're more than uh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and take a thirty thousand uh, foot view of the resurrection, and, and, and something that you've developed is called the minimal facts argument. So before we go into those facts, can you please talk uh, talk about uh, real quick about what the minimal facts argument is for our audience? Well, many years ago, I was working on my dissertation at uh, Michigan State University in the. Folks on my committee were were very kind, and there were a half dozen members on my committee, and they represented uh, different interests and specialties in the university. And as we were breaking up on our first meeting where my topic was approved, I, I did it on the resurrection. <clears throat> the um, One of the scholars on my committee who I never asked him, but as far as I know, I don't think he believed in the in the resurrection. And he said to me, um, he said, "Hey, uh, yeah, this is going to be a good dissertation. I'm, you know, I'm going to look forward to this thing." But he goes, "Just just a word of 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 uh, caution." He said, uh, "Of course, don't tell us the resurrection happened because the New Testament said so." <laughs> and I kind of. I mean, I knew that was coming because, I, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's not a Bible college, and I can't just write, you know, Luke says, Paul says, John says. I have to do it critically. and um, But that, it hit me what he was saying, you know. And, and then I said, <laughs> at the end of the first meeting, I actually said to the director of my program, I actually said, how long does this have to be? And he said, well, he said, it's got to be at least 200 pages. He said, but, you know, our dissertations are often longer. And I said, would you take anything less? I, I literally asked him that. Would you take anything less? And he said, he said, well, 180, but we can't go under that. And so I got thinking about what he said. Don't, don't say the resurrection happened because the Bible said so. And I had been right. working for probably two years at that point. I'd been working on a way to communicate the truth of the resurrection with people who do not believe the Bible's even the word of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I got, I was thinking before I even got that topic approved, I was thinking, 
is there a way to make the resurrection uh, obvious to people who do not think the Bible is either inspired or even reliable? Hmm. It's just a book of religious propaganda, i.e., it's the religious views of people who have an opinion about something. Um, how can I use it? So I started thinking about this method of, uh, I, I, it goes by different names, but but the mental facts, sometimes I call it the lowest common denominator method. Mm-hmm. If, if I could use a body of data, which New Testament scholars often do this, they'll say, where do we all agree on the life of Jesus? And I thought, okay, if, if I were to start with a number of facts about the last month of Jesus's life, uh, what would that look like? And what would be, what would everyone agree to? So I started coming up with a list of facts that at that time, Rudolf Boltmann was the most influential critic. And there's nobody really like him today. He was extremely influential and extremely critical. And I thought, well, I made a list. I made a list of facts at that time, actually before I had my topic approved. And I thought these things would be true even from the most skeptical New Testament thinker. And that was really where the minimal facts came from, was saying, well, if this guy will admit these things, most everybody else will admit more, so this is a good basis. And, and I need to, I need to um, be clear right up front. A lot of people think what I'm saying is I'm using facts that are true because scholars say so, and that's, that's not the case. Uh, facts are not true because scholars say they're true. Right. Because, you know, it, it, 10 years, there could be a different list of facts. So there's a reason scholars say they're true. And so the first criteria for the minimal facts is uh, we can only pick data that is evidenced from a variety of different uh, directions, even by those who t- don't take the New Testament to face value. So I won't use a fact that does not have many facts, other facts, pointing to it in its favor. And then second point, that's why scholars don't disagree with it, because it's so, it's so well attested. So that's the two rules. By far the most common, the, the most important rule is I won't use a fact that doesn't have many other facts in its favor. And by the way, your listeners may be interested, I, all, all through my career doing this for a long time, decades, People often ask me, where is this scholar on this fact, or where is this one or this one? But they don't ask me, what is your backup for this fact or this fact? How did these become minimal facts? So I sat down just not very long ago and put together a list of how many independent pieces of data confirm each of the half dozen, usually, facts that I call the minimal facts. And the list is about 100 about 100 little pieces of backup considerations that argue for the historicity of these half dozen facts. So that's why when you use them, I mean, I've used them in dialogues before, I've used them in debates before, and the debate starts like this. Well, these are Geary's minimal facts. Uh, what do you think about this? The scholars ask, uh, the critic is asked by the moderator. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. and usually the moderator, the, the uh, person says, yeah, I'm good to go. Use all of them. That's fine. I, I concede them. And that's how the dialogue starts. Huh. Wow. Hey, <clears throat> Doctor, is, is there just a, a, a small example that you can just give us on this? 
Sure. Uh, do you want to list the facts or a small yeah. example? Of, yeah, just, of a, what? just a little small example so just our listeners can can understand a little sure. bit more. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, we're going to be going point by point. Obviously, we're not going to get to all of them today, yes. um, but we're going to shoot some a couple at you, and those are the ones we'll be addressed. But yeah, if you could just, the amount and what they are. Sure. Uh, now, I use shorter lists. I, I use anywhere from a three or four to maybe seven. And you go, well, why do you change the numbers? Well, scholarship doesn't change, but I change the numbers because my audience is often different. Mm. Sometimes they're more or less skeptical. But here's the main reason I change numbers. Critics, even really skeptical ones, will give me a much longer list. They'll concede a longer list than what I will use. But my argument is the fewer I use, the more critics I'll have on board. So having said that, I could I could give six real fast because these are the keys. Uh, number one, this is an evidence for the resurrection, but you need Jesus to be dead first. So uh, death by crucifixion mm-hmm. is the first. Mm, right. right. And secondly, and this is the key fact that the disciples I'm wording I'm wording it very carefully the disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus to say it in shorthand they thought they saw Jesus after his death yeah uh, thirdly they proclaimed this event very very early how early well today there's been several writers now New Testament scholars critical scholars who have said the consensus New Testament position is that this message was proclaimed not 20, 30, 40 years later for the first time when the Gospels were written, but this message was actually proclaimed one to two years after the cross. It comes down in oral testimony. Uh, So mm. it's very early. That's three. Four, the disciples' lives were turned upside down. They They were changed significantly because they believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And that perspective of being raised from the dead, it changed their whole life. Yeah. In fact, I, I don't claim that they all died for their faith. You can't prove that with all with early sources. Yeah. But they were all willing to die, to die for their faith. You can say, well, how, how do you know they were willing? Because they kept putting themselves in positions where they could easily have been hurt badly, killed, yeah. maimed, mm. uh, and they kept doing it. They kept doing it. They kept doing it. So that's an indication. And then four, five and six, two critics, James, the brother of Jesus, an insider, family member, and Paul, uh, I like to say, you know, Paul was basically a Ph.D. in Old Testament. Yeah. He was scholar. He was. And he, was. Uh, and he met the risen Jesus. Yeah. So what do you do with them? You know, you can't say, oh, yeah, everybody just wanted to believe so much they invented the story. That doesn't work with James and Paul. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd use those six. Crucifixion, their experiences, proclaimed early, lives transformed. What do you do with James and Paul? Yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. So let's, let's do a little bit of a rapid-fire quick summary. So let's start with the first one. Uh, Jesus died by crucifixion. Unpack that one for us. Okay. Now, a, a moment ago I said the most important point is that I won't use any facts which don't have multiple evidences or reasons that establish that fact. Of the many, many, the dozens actually, of medical personnel who have written articles, uh, medical doctors, it's really interesting when a pathologist writes, because a pathologist, you know, is, is depending on what kind of pathologist, sometimes it, uh, used to examining bodies and what was the cause of death. And and when medical experts get involved, 
there are other views, but by far the most common view is that death by crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. And, uh, you know, unlike most kinds of death where you have to say, is he dead? Is he dead? You know, and wonder if the person passed out or in a coma. The major view of, of crucifixion is that it has its own built-in uh, reasons to know that the person has died. Mm. And if they die by asphyxiation, which is still the major view, not the only view, but major view, mm-hmm. if they die by crucifixion, the the centurion could be standing there and seeing a person hang in a low position. It's the less painful position to hang down and not push up on those nails in your feet. And But if the person, when they're slumped down in the down position, asphyxiation starts because pulling the weight of an adult uh, male body uh, constricts the muscles around the lungs, the intercostal pectoral deltoid muscles. And a person is progressively less able to exhale Mm-hmm. And if you can't exhale, you know, you may as well not be inhaling. So wow. uh, so if Jesus was slumped down on the low end of the cross and he wasn't talking and he was in that position for, um, well, in some experiments when people don't push up and some experiments are things over in, in 15 minutes, you say, well, who would ever stay that long? They don't. But in some experiments, people have actually passed out. So they have to be careful. And in one experiment in um, what was West Germany uh, years ago, the the, um, uh, persons who were were pulled up on the on the uh, crossbeam were losing consciousness in a maximum of 11 or 12 minutes. So Uh and you say, well, but they said, you know, Pilot was surprised didn't think he was. He thought he was on the cross for a short time. That's because a crucifixion victim can keep pushing up. And when you push up, you free your lungs. So as long as you can keep pulling up, pushing up, you can do it. But that's my point. If you're slumped on the low point of the cross, even the crucif- even the centurion can tell when you're dead without using a stethoscope or anything. So that's just one of the reasons. They stabbed him in the side, according to John. Some of the top scholars today, the critical scholars, defend that spear wound. Because there are other ancient non-Christian sources that talk about piercing bodies and doing things to make sure people don't get down off the cross alive. So there's a lot of reasons to know that Jesus died on the cross. Is so, uh, Doctor, is it fair to say that every time that we see uh, Jesus talking in the Gospels during his crucifixion, he would have to like raise himself up? Uh, to talk, to lift this up, to be able to breathe and, and speak? W- would that be fair to say? Right, it is fair to say, because you have to be able to exhale. And, I mean, I suppose it's barely possible that he could have said something in a very thin voice and, and you know, not had much volume. But if you're going to talk, if you're going to talk loudly, especially with those people on the cross who are cursing people and, you know, the, the men on each side of Jesus who are arguing back and forth, yep, you've got to be able to exhale and have that lung power to, to uh, get the words out. Okay. And, and fulfill proce- prophecy, too, as he's saying these things so other people can hear as well. So it had to be loud enough, right? Yeah, well, yeah, enough that people around the cross could hear him. Okay. Yeah, when yeah. he when he said, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sure. Or into your hands I commend my spirit. Yeah. Uh, people were 
you know, people could later report those words because they they heard him say them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so how do we know that Jesus died by crucifixion? Because that was just a little bit of a description of the painful process of being crucified. So, how, right. which is great. So how do we know that he was that that he died by crucifixion? Well, he. Oh, okay. If you just mean that somebody put him on a cross or what we call a cross, doesn't have you know different kinds of. Yeah. And and the ancient world, by the way, they would stick people any old way on an almost any kind of wood to get them up. Sometimes they nailed them to flat surfaces. I mean, today the equivalent might be to to nail a person to the side of a building or something, you know, a wooden building. They, they would put them on anything where they would stretch them out like that. But there's a lot of historical sources. Of the dozen and a half historical sources for Jesus outside the New Testament, within about 150 years of his birth, uh, the fact that's reported most often is that he died, and that he died by crucifixion. It's the most frequently reported okay. fact. Uh, I'll give you one citation. Dom Cross and John Dominic Cross, and one mm-hmm. of the co-founders of the Jesus Seminar, and a very famous uh, skeptical scholar today. Dom Crossan said that he takes it absolutely for granted that Jesus died by crucifixion. Uh, he basically said, to paraphrase him, that it, it was as well known as any fact in the ancient world. So there's no dispute from him that Jesus is crucified. Bart Ehrman would say the same thing. Marcus Borg, until he passed away a few years ago, another co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, said almost the exact same thing, that how sure we are of death by crucifixion. Yeah, yeah, and, and that establishes and actually blows away the whole idea that Jesus is a myth and a fabrication of a pagan deities and stuff like mm. so. And and these are coming from atheists, by the way, too. The, those those names that uh, uh, Habermas mentioned. So um, uh, the next minimal fact, Gary, uh, followers thought they had seen the risen Jesus. Unpack mm. that one. Yeah, you know what? The the person I'll I'll cite here. You mentioned atheist. Atheist New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman has a section in one of his books where he says, do I think the earliest disciples were proclaiming that Jesus appeared to him? He said, of course I'm saying that. He said, I'm not embarrassed to say that the earliest disciples had experiences and they thought he was raised from the dead. And and he makes an, uh, an astounding comment. He says, I'm reporting that as fact because historians have the kind of data that established that. We know that from history, that the earliest followers of Jesus was proclaiming that he was raised from the dead, and they were proclaiming that a number of, uh, you know, the other followers, not not every follower saw Jesus, but that a lot of followers were saying, yep, I'm one of the ones that, that saw him. Of course, Paul says that on one occasion, 500 saw him, wow. and he implies... Paul implies that they were still alive. Yeah. I mean, he says a good deal of them are still alive, but he implies that you could go check it out yourself. So, yeah, there were people running around saying that, and Bart Ehrman said, I have no problem with this because that's what history reports. That's right. a report, a known report of history. Right, right. Wow. Uh, the third one, uh, those who had seen him had transformed lives, uh, especially Paul, if you could talk about that. Sure, I think we're, we're, you'd be putting a few of them together there, okay. conflating a few of those points. One of them would be early. It was proclaimed early. One of them was their lives are transformed to the uh, extent where they're willing to die, and then you've got Paul and James, and those are the last four. On the early one, okay, so you've got this idea that Jesus is raised, and people are running around saying, I saw him. But how do we know that was proclaimed early? 
how do we know it wasn't proclaimed for the first time uh, when Mark wrote his gospel 40 years later, you know? Um, but Bart Ehrman, I'll use him again. Bart Ehrman lists a number of sources, and he's not alone in this, but he lists a number of sources that he dates to one to two years from the cross, not 40 years, not plus 40 with the Gospel of Mark, but within one to two years, we have sources that establish that Jesus was crucified and that he was seen by these followers. And you could say, well, how do we go back that far? Hmm. I'll I'll tell you, these these texts are called pre-Pauline, and there's two definitions of pre-Pauline. One is, if Paul included them in the epistles, his his major epistles, and if First Thessalonians is the first one to be written about 50 A.D., that's plus 20, 20 years after the cross. Well, they'd have to be pre-Pauline in that case. They'd have to be older in the book in which they appear. If I list a footnote of a book, and my book was written in 2000, the book I cite has to be written before 2000. And... Paul cites sources before him, but there's a different sense of pre-Pauline, and this is really exciting. Critics are willing to admit, even the Jesus Seminar, who rejected the vast majority of the red-letter words of Jesus, and as well as his actions, they only accepted about 15% of his Uh. words. They believe that when Paul said yes to Jesus on the way to Damascus, that the report that Jesus had died, was raised, and appeared that report was already in existence when Paul said yes to Jesus. That's how early the actual report is of people who said they saw the risen Jesus. And Bart Ehrman says, I've got no problem with these things going back to one to two years after the cross. So it's very, very early. Um, the, the resurrection, how, how do we show that their message was trans, transformed these guys' lives? Well, uh, it made them stop right in their tracks. They quit, they quit doing their jobs. They quit fishing, they quit tax collecting, they quit whatever they were doing, they were separated from their families, they spent the rest of their lives on the road, so to speak, proclaiming the gospel. We do have sources of martyrdom. For the, uh, for example, the big four, uh, Peter and John, two of the twelve, and then James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, we have sources, first century sources for the martyrdom of three of those four men. So that, you know, they were sold out to this teaching. And then again, what do you do with James and Paul, two skeptics who come to Christ? So those those are the six facts. Now, uh, Doctor, you, you were uh, already answering the next question for me, and thank you very much, that the resurrection was taught very early, and what does that mean? Can you just touch a little bit on what that oral tradition looked like? Uh, you stated earlier about that in the beginning of the podcast. Can we just kind of touch on that a little bit? Sure. I'll just give, I'll pick an example. Twice in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says twice, once for the communion passage, once for the gospel definition of chapter 15. Paul uses identical words, uh, just very little variation, and he says, I gave you what I was given. Mm-hmm. Basically, he, th- this is, I tell people that's a first century footnote. Uh, today we would say, John Doe said this, and we would list John Doe's source in the title of his book and the page number. Uh, Paul said, I gave you what I was given. Paul is saying, 
my source is elsewhere. I was told this, and I'm telling you what I was told. So he's footnoting his material. And it's unanimously conceded by critical scholars that Paul is repeating material that was passed down by the eyewitnesses, and it was already in existence again. That's one of those places that's already in existence when he becomes a believer. Mm-hmm. And he's passing on the word that other people saw the risen Jesus. So it comes at a very, very early date. And someone could say, well, somebody could make that up, uh, really. So they made something up, and then they were willing to die for it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it, it doesn't explain the, the change in the life to be totally sold out to something. I mean, I mean, if a, if a person died... If an atheist died for communism, the communist message back in the, you know, early parts of the last century, uh, we believe that a person could be sold out to a philosophy or a political view and be willing to give their whole life to it. And so it's obvious when a person is transformed by a message, that's all they talk about. And Paul met the people. I think the best thing Paul does for us is he goes back to Jerusalem twice in Galatians 1 and again in Galatians 2, and he interviewed that's the actual Greek word in, in uh, Galatians 1.18. Mm. He interviewed, it's the, it's the Greek word from which historians got the word history hundreds mm. of years before there was Christianity. The word that Paul uses word is used for history writing. And Paul went back to interview them. So we have a long train of people who've done research before us, namely the Apostle Paul. And, and our tradition is really foreign to a Western culture. I mean, it is. I, um, am I correct to say that uh, the culture in that time, oral to oral tradition, can uh, be pinpoint with accuracy in repeating what they have learned uh, through teachers and rabbis because of just the things that they were just repeating over and over again? Mm-hmm. Would that be correct? Yeah, you know, uh, one foot away from my hand right here, I was doing research. Uh, before we did this program. And I've got a book here called Jesus Remembered by James D.G. Dunn. Uh, James D.G. Dunn is as influential as any critical scholar today. And this book, a thousand pages, this book is dedicated to tracing the oral teachings. And he argues that people were probably taking notes while Jesus was speaking, Mm. and that we have that material. That's one of the reasons we have very careful material wow. uh, right there. So, yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, again, James D.G. Dunn is as influential as anybody today, any critical scholar. Every, he's very well respected. And he writes this whole book to what you just said, telling people how tradition is remembered and passed down and why it's preserved and why people are willing to die for it and so on. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that I've never heard that one before. That yeah. is interesting. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah well, there's, ma- there's many others. I mean, Richard Bauckham is another example. Some mm. of the top scholars today are tracing this kind of lineage wow. for how we can take oral reports and how do we know that what was, again, it's the minimal facts, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, it's the facts that we know best. How can we trace them back to the big, the earliest data and yeah. say that this this and this occurred? Yeah. Wow. 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 All right. So the last minimal fact. This is kind of be, going to be the bow tie of the minimal facts. And again, there's a lot more. So I recommend people to go uh, g- look at uh, Dar- uh, uh, Gary Doctor Habermas's work. Yeah. Um, so the last one, the empty tomb. All right. We could name all these facts, but I think if the tomb is in, uh, there was a body there. Yeah. Then. 
you know, you could make an argument that the resurrection never happened, but there are scholars, if I'm correct, that the tomb was empty. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Now, I don't count the empty tomb as one of the mental facts only okay. because, well, no, no, I'll still do it. Okay. But oh, okay. only because it's not unanimously conceded by scholars. It's conceded by the majority of scholars, but not mental, but it's still. So sometimes when someone says, how many do you want to use? I'll say six plus one. And what's the plus one? That's the empty tomb because there's probably, there's more evidences for the empty tomb than arguably any of the other ones. But it's not as unanimously conceded. So that's the only issue. But as far as evidence, yeah, we've got it. And the two, we could give several, but the two evidences that interest critics the most, uh, number one is female testimony, the fact that the earliest witnesses, if, if you put yourself in the position of the four gospel writers, and they're around different parts of the Mediterranean, <clears throat> and they're writing the story of what happened on Sunday morning, why does each one of them say, and the women, and the women, and the women, and the women? And someone could say, well, they were copying off each other. They didn't even know each other. I mean, <laughs> how are they going to copy each other? Well, and the women. Now, Luke and John tell us that men went back to the tomb to check out what the woman said. If you want to do the way, if you want to do the testimony the way they did in the first century, let men be your witnesses, because women testimony was was not often used. Mm. And if the, and it would be the truth to say men went to the tomb, because mm. they did. Now they went later, but they did go to the tomb. But no, they tell the story, all four, and the women, and the women, and the women, and the women. Why? Why put your worst foot forward in terms of evidence and say women? Very simply, because that's what happened. Trust, so, them, trust and verify, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. So the fact that the, the women testimony, I can tell you because I've done a head count, it's by far the most frequent, frequently given reason for accepting the empty tomb in critical scholarship today. The second reason, which is I think is just as powerful, is the fact that it was proclaimed in the same city where Jesus was buried. I mean, let, let's try this out. If you're going to break the news that the tomb was empty and you want to be safe, do it in Rome. Yeah. Do it in Athens. Do it somewhere else, because no one's going to get on a train and go back to Jerusalem to see if the tomb was really empty. Wow. But why in the world do you say the tomb was empty in the city where the tomb was empty? Someone could take uh, a day's walk. I mean, a day's walk. They could take an, they could take an hour walk and go to the tomb. Uh, you know, it's probably a very famous place, and nothing's in there. Uh, it's empty. It's just the wrong place to be claiming the empty tomb if the tomb is closed and if there's a body in the tomb. Now, sometimes, every once in a while, a critic says, well, what if they found a body in the tomb, but the body had deteriorated and you couldn't see it was, you couldn't tell it was Jesus? And I'll say, you know, th think about what you're saying. Yeah. So if there's a body in the tomb, but we don't know who it is, then the New Testament proclamation is false. Because the New Testament proclamation is the tomb was empty, empty, not holding a body that we don't know who it is. If the tomb has a body in it, it's disproven. The tomb was empty. And where are you proclaiming this? Jerusalem. Where yeah. was he buried? Jerusalem. Bad news if that tomb isn't empty. Wow. And, and, and Doctor, as we uh, start landing this plane on this podcast, why is the resurrection so important for the Christian faith? And what hope do we have in the resurrection? 
Yeah, and, and you know, that last comment you made is the reason why it's so important. Mm-hmm. The New Testament locks almost every area of theology, 300 verses in the New Testament on the, on the resurrection, and it's related to almost every area of theology and almost every, every area of practice. They say, well, why is it so important? Okay, just try one text. In 1 Peter chapter 1, um, the text says, you know, there's persecution going on. You guys are suffering for your faith. But hang in there, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because he's been raised from the dead, nobody will be able to take your eternal crown from you. Three Greek words are used there to indicate your your security deposit in heaven is, is secure. Nobody can take it from you. If the resurrection can ensure heaven for me, and if a, tra- if a child dies, if somebody is persecuted and dies because, you know, they're killed for their preaching. To know that there is eternal life was a great, great truth. So to, the, the yellow brick road, so to speak, that goes from the cross to the, you know, in Oz, it's the Emerald City. In early Christianity, the path was from the cross to heaven. And that's secure from the resurrection. So that's just one of many reasons. If, by the way, of all the doctrines that are said in the New Testament to depend on the resurrection, the one that's tied to the resurrection the most, this yellow brick road idea, the one that's tied to the resurrection the most is the resurrection of believers. Mm. We shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him, John says. So it's central because it locks down everything that we hold dear. Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, Dr. Habermas, uh, uh, as always, with uh, at the end of our program, we like for our guests to share the gospel. So the floor is yours, brother. <laughs> okay. Well, I tell people that there's there's two sides to the gospel. There's God's side, and there's our side. The, the God's side is that path. Jesus, even with skeptics, Jesus said. Not just, I bring you the words of life, which almost every founder of every world religion said, I've got, you know, good words for you. But Jesus didn't just say, I have the words of life. He said, I am the words of life. Philosophers call that ontological. It's ontology. It's what is. Jesus said, yeah, I'm bringing you a path, but I am the path. So even according to critics, Jesus basically taught that what you do with him determines your place where you're going to be with God at the end of time in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. What you do with Christ determines where you spend eternity. And so the facts, God's side of the gospel, whenever the gospel is defined in the New Testament, what, you know, what are we committing our lives to? Well, whenever the gospel is defined, it always concerned the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Deity, death, resurrection. You can't have a resurrection without death. And uh, oh, but here, here's a good way to do it. The early creed, this is one of the early creeds we talked about, Romans 10, 9, very well known. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Deity, death, resurrection. Confess that he's Lord and he's raised from the dead. So the order there is Lord, resurrection, death. And he, Paul says, after he repeats the creed, he says, you ought to believe this, and he quotes the Old Testament, which, by the way, it's citing uh, Jehovah, is the word there for, for God. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul's saying, do this. So the one side is, is he the Son of God? Yes. Did he die on the cross for our sins? Yes. 
Was he raised from the dead? Yes. What are you going to do about it? Well, the New Testament requires the human side, which is saying, I do, to Jesus, making a commitment. And I do are the most famous words in most languages, you know, for for marriage. Mm-hmm. And we know marriage is more than something you do on an afternoon. Yeah. It is something that lasts for the rest of your lives, theoretically. And saying I do to Jesus is to make a commitment. And so that's that's our side. God's done this. Are we interested in getting involved in that covenant, that commitment to Jesus Christ? That's that's the gospel that the New Testament presents. Wow. There's just not enough time on this podcast to get all this information. I know. Uh, I, I, I feel that we, I, I feel that I, I've been shortchanged a little bit. I want more. <laughs> yeah, I want to go more into the discussion, but that that's the reason why we could probably bring uh, Dr. Habermas on again. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Habermas, where can uh, our audience find you? And also, what book would they, would you recommend them to read by you specifically? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, where can they find me? Okay. My website is GaryHabermas.com, that easily. Uh, and a lot of material there, I sell nothing on my website. No books for sale, you have to get that out elsewhere. But there's there's uh, podcasts, there's lectures, there's uh, publications that are on my website. You have to be careful, some of them are copyrighted, but, but as far as I'm concerned, I put everything on there I can put on. And um, so they can get GaryHabermas.com. And as far as a book, um, you know, I think, the best book out right now on the historicity of the resurrection is my my good buddy Mike Lacona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, a historic, uh, historiographical uh, perspective. And it's an excellent book published by InterVarsity. But Mike and I have also done a co-authored book, and uh, it's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, published by Kriegel. And that's a little less—his other book— the Resurrection of Jesus, a New Historiographical Approach. That's his doctoral dissertation. It's going to be a little heavy. But the case for the resurrection of Jesus, Mike and I wrote together, and that's that's got probably anything most people would want. Well, there you go. There you go. Meat potatoes, right? You know, if you want some meat potatoes and you want something a little less than that, there you go. You go get some meat. Go go get something that's uh, that's that's really scholarly. That's always fun. Yeah, that is. Uh, Dr. Harry uh, Harry (laughs) Gary. I'm sorry, Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. Thank you so much for coming on the program. We definitely have to have you back, and uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it very much. Had a good time. You guys asked great questions. Thank you again, Doctor. All right, Abe, so how about we do a free book giveaway, especially for those who have actually listened all the way through to this end? Because a yeah. lot of people just go, like, hey, I'll go ahead and check out. But yeah. let's do a free uh, book giveaway. Which one do you want to do? Uh, let's do The Case for the Resurrection. Uh, By Dr. Mike Lycona? Lycona and uh, Dr. Gary uh, Habermas that they worked on it together. So let's do that one. Let's do that let's one. Let's do that one. Yeah. I mean, all right. Unless, uh, but yeah, I think the, I think, I think that would that be better. That good. Yeah. yeah so. it's, it's the milk yeah, that we just said. Yeah. Yeah. Milk, milk with cho- milk with chocolate, with chocolate. I think. You like chocolate milk. Yeah. I like chocolate milk. <laughs> <laughs> Super random. All right. So how do you win this? Right. Good question. Well, you could uh, first drop a positive review on any podcast platform, snap a picture of that, send me an email at juliobridgeman at gmail.com, juliobridgeman at gmail.com. I'll receive it and we'll go ahead and just shoot back and forth and we'll set that up and that's going to be within the united states only unless no 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 Uh-oh. Julio. who hold on for our worldwide listeners 
Julio just tried to limit you to the United States. I'm sorry. That's terrible. You're going li- to limit it to Texas. No, I'm kidding. No, no we're no. not going to do that. This is for our, we have we have a worldwide audience, anybody for anybody who's in Australia, Africa, Europe, Russia, Alaska, anywhere. Please. Okay. We Yeah, we'll Uh-oh. ship it out to you. Just give us your address Uh-oh. and we'll sh- ship it out. Right. The, the Australians are like, yeah. they're already typing away. Yeah, thank, <laughs> we got yeah. a following out there. You yeah. guys are in awesome. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. all you get. Uh, and, and thank you again. Uh, we, we, we haven't mentioned this, and I think the last couple. Thank yeah. you again for our worldwide yes. listeners. Yeah. You guys are so encouraging to us, and we, we get yeah. your messages. Really, we thank do. you. And a shout out to everybody in all the continents of this wonderful, beautiful planet. Yes. Yeah. And also, to uh, random side note, uh, Abe got a Twitter account. So you can follow <laughs> him at, at, at AW Varilla, and I'm at, at Julio. O R O D G Z. Yeah. And and you can follow us on uh, yeah. Facebook, Instagram, yeah. and also on uh, on Twitter, yeah. the Bridge Ministry, our social media as well. Yeah. We're looking to engage more in, in Twitter so you guys can see what we look like. So, yeah. Brown dudes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, if you would like to learn more about Bridge Ministries, please visit our website at bridgemenlaredo.org. That's bridgemenlaredo.org and click our About Us tab. We are a reformed Christian bookstore and coffee shop who is dedicated to discipling and equipping the saints for the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. Again, I always like to emphasize this. We are not a church. We're not here to be a church, Mm -hmm. but we're here to support churches and other ministries by providing affordable new and used Bible Bibles and gospel-centered Christian books and study resources. We are not only a gospel outreach to our location, our community, but also to the nations through this podcast. So please prayerfully consider supporting Bridge Ministries through a one-time and monthly gift. This allows us to really do this entire podcast, to do our Bible studies, to do our conference, to look, actually to to possibly look into getting a new facility that that we actually want so we could be able to do more outreach, especially be a gospel outreach to Mexico. Um, we're right on along the border, Laredo, yeah. Texas. Look us up. We're, we're at the very tip tip inside of Texas, and we're right along the border. We're, yeah. We are fighting word of faith, prosperity gospel, workspace salvation. Catholicism. Catholicism and a, a lack of understanding the mm. Bible. We get people who actually it's the first time they ever purchase a Bible. Yeah. They re- even read. So there's a lot of things we're battling, and so the, you just, your willingness to support mm. us, it, it, it goes to this cause, and we just want our listeners to know that and people who are who, who are tuning in weekly. And so, yeah, if you would just please do that, like and share, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with your family and friends as well. All right, Abe, so what's the question we always ask? <laughs> what is the question that we always ask? <laughs> what is your only comfort in life and death? Yeah, I know. I just went blank. <laughs> you went blank? All right, I'll do it. Okay. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, soul. in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ? See you yes. on the next episode. And latest, uh, happy Easter and happy have a good Easter. Friday. Thank you. <laughs>